as we read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, ma eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So as I'm sure you have gathered by now, Gospel Mark is all about action. Unlike Matthew, who records for us big, robust portions of Jesus' teaching, and Luke, which contains many more of the Lord's parables, God chose to, spoke, to speak through John Mark, painting for us just a vivid, straightforward picture of the life of Jesus Christ and all of the mighty works that he performed. And so whenever the evangelist is used to bring us these elongated portions of Jesus' teaching, we do well to perk up and listen, make certain that we hear well, that we listen well to the teaching of our Lord and Savior. So those of you that were with us last week, those of you that gathered in this place or that gathered with us online, you'll recall that Jesus has just completed his second recorded instance of straightforward teaching, that he, the Son of Man, that he must be betrayed, that he must be handed over by evil men to evil men, that by the hands of those evil men, he must suffer many things and be killed. And that there on that cross is Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, as he willingly laid down his perfect, infinitely worthy life for the sake of sinners. It was there upon that cross where his Father poured out the fullness of his wrath. All that he had been storing up, from the fall of man back in the garden, extending forward to the Lord's return, God's white, hot hatred for sin and sinners was poured out upon his son. Without mercy, it pleased his father to crush his son, because this was the way that he would be glorified, showing himself to be both just and the justifier of sinners. He did not let up. He left his son alone in utter darkness, completely abandoned as he poured out the fullness of the cup of his wrath until there was no more left for sinners like you and like me. All for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of the saints. This was the ultimate act of humility. Never in the history of the universe has there been a greater show of humble servants' love for men who deserve nothing. But there on that cross, Jesus showed us what it meant to be a true servant, what it meant to glorify God and counting yourself as under those that you would serve. It's laying down your life for the sake of those that do not deserve it. Jesus was showing the ultimate picture of humility to come as they turned and they headed towards Jerusalem. And no sooner had these words left the mouth of Jesus than those that claimed to follow him, those that did follow him, began to argue amongst themselves about which of them would be greatest in the kingdom of God. So as they stopped in Capernaum, slipped into a house, probably Peter and Andrew's house, as they slipped into the house, 
Jesus turned and he asked the men, what were you talking about along the way? What was that conversation you were having back then? But the men were too ashamed, perhaps afraid, to speak up and to answer his question. But the thing is that Jesus knows the hearts of men. He knew not only what they said and why they said it, he knew the very heart, the driver behind that discussion. He didn't ask the question because he needed information. He asked the question that might open the door to more teaching, to another touch from the master teacher to bring them to clearer sight and to a better understanding. So Jesus calls the 12 to himself, and then he sits down as a good rabbi would. And he teaches them very plainly, teaches them that anyone that would be great in the kingdom of God, anyone that would be first in the kingdom of God, he must be last of all, and he must be servant of all. As we follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, the one who is truly greatest, as we are transformed into his image, as we were brought by the power of the Holy Spirit to think and speak and love and live and die as he does, we will find ourselves serving the very least of God's people, putting ourselves last, looking at the power structure of this world, that strata by which everyone knows exactly where they stand. You see, we're all too keen to serve those that are above us, to serve those that we think are going to bring to us some name for ourselves, those that are going to repay us, those that are going to rightly respond in appreciation to what we give them. It's those down here that we're not so swell on. And yet, it's to look at this strata, this power structure of all creation, of all the men around us, specifically, specifically those within the church, and say, I'll place myself here. I will serve you all. I will serve every last one of you, from the smallest child to the greatest king. I will serve you all. And when we do this, when we willingly do this for the sake of God's glory and for the love of our brothers, when we refuse to scratch and claw and fight like the world does to make ourselves great, when we give no thought whatsoever to whether the people that we serve deserve it, to whether the people we serve are going to repay us, to whether they're even going to understand the things that we have done for them, when we give no thought whatsoever to whether this act of service is worthy of our gifting, whether we feel called to do this particular act of service, when we wake up each day daily denying ourselves, when we wake up each day with a commitment to die to the God of selves, when we make ourselves a servant of all, when we do this, when we truly follow after our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we show very clearly how much we trust and cherish the God of the universe. Now, we are not enslaved to the things of this world. When we say that I cherish you, God, I trust in your promises, God, I treasure your eternal gifts, God, more than anything this world has to offer, more than money, more than health, more than a name for myself, more than my reputation, more than my comforts, more than my preferences, more than even my very life. When we do this, we fulfill the very purpose for which we have been created. You see this. This is what it means to be great. This is what it means to fulfill your purpose, to glorify God in serving those around you, to glorify God in humbling yourself, to glorify God in saying, I trust in your eternal treasures more than the things that are before me more than the things that I can see and taste and touch, more than the things that all the rest of this world is running after. I trust in you. I seek to glorify you, not to make a name for myself, but that the world would see one that truly delights in you and that you would be glorious in their eyes. This is what it means to be great, not the fleeting greatness of the world, not the greatness of the world which always leaves you lacking which always leaves you desperate for more, which builds within you the anxiety of knowing that it's all going to burn up in the end. This is true, lasting greatness. The greatness of the creature, fulfilling the very purpose for his creation to the glory of his creator. That is what it means to be great. 
But the apostles still had much more to learn. What about you? What'd you do this week? Did you find the God of self waiting for you at your bedside each morning? But have you learned to hate him? Have you learned to look to the living God? Have you learned to be honest and transparent with him? Confessing, God, I know how desperately I want to build a name for myself because the flesh is so very strong. God, would you remove this desire from me? Would you make yourself great? Would you increase that I may decrease? May you draw me to a point where I see your glory greater than all. Or, or, did you play around in their flesh? Did you try to straddle the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world? Did you try to keep a foot in both camps? Did you believe that you could make a name for God while making a name for yourself? With the apostles, we see that they did a little from column A and a little from column B. They had much to learn. But Jesus was not yet done with his teaching. So I invite you to stand to your feet, please. The reverence of reading of God's word. We're going to return to Mark chapter 9. We're going to begin reading in verse 38. This is the word of the Lord. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, we are slow learners, but you are so very gracious. You are so very patient. The work that you have begun in us, we know how very faithful you will be to complete it. So we thank you, Father, that we need not show up into this place believing that you have abandoned or given up on us. But the Father, as we sit under the teaching of the Master Teacher, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as we humble ourselves, we sit at his feet and trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us to walk in obedience, that we will be transformed. That is our desire this morning. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Chapter 38 began like this. John said to him, now this is a very unique passage in Mark's gospel. Firstly, because this is the only place where Mark records for us the direct words of the apostle John. In addition to that, as best I can tell, this is the only place where Mark talks about the Apostle John apart from his brother James. You'll recall that James and John, they're a part of the inner circle. They're part of those three that were set apart from amongst the twelve that were set apart. But these men had been chosen by God to witness some truly spectacular events. The raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal. And certainly... Jesus going up onto that high mountain where there he would be transfigured, revealing his glory to these three. So whenever Mark lists for us the apostles for the first time back in chapter 3, what we see is that he tells us that Jesus gave to James and John the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Now whenever we think of John, we most often think about him as the apostle of love because there is so much tenderness and love and compassion and so much of what he wrote. But you need to make no mistake Within these boys, there was a real fire in their belly, and it was not always rightly directed. 
was not always pointed in the proper direction. If you look in Luke's gospel, in his parallel account to this morning's text, you'll find a story there that comes right after this. Mark doesn't record this story, but there in Luke chapter 9, you'll see that as Jesus has turned and he set his face towards Jerusalem, he sends ahead some messengers and he tells them, go into, go into Samaria for me. You see, in order to go from Capernaum down into Judea and Jerusalem, they were going to pass through there. And so he says, would you send some messengers ahead in order to prepare the way for me? But what they find when they get there is that the Samaritans won't receive them. The Samaritans won't receive him, meaning Jesus. So we come to Luke 9, 54 through 56. Again, this is a text that comes in Luke's gospel right after his parallel to what we read this morning. 54. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? These dudes couldn't even cast out a demon from a little boy. You ready to start calling down fire? But because these men, because these Samaritans would not receive them and would not receive Jesus who sent them, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. How do you like that? How do you like that? God? These filthy Samaritans, they will not receive you. Let's do that Sodom and Gomorrah thing again. Just send it down and burn them up. See, the Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle Peter, he has that reputation of being the one whose mouth runs ahead of his brain. But make no mistake, the brothers were just as guilty of missing the mark. They were just as guilty as completely missing what it was that Jesus had come to do. And yet, he chose them. He chose these three. These were the leaders, the inner circle amongst the 12 that he had chosen. Truly, God has not choose the greatest, the smartest, the brightest, even the most faithful, the ones with the greatest understanding. God chooses the weak and the lowly and the stupid and the prideful that he might glorify himself, that he might show himself to be mighty. That there's no one that can look and go, is it the kingdom of God? Blessed to have me. Well, aren't you glad that I'm on your team, Jesus? You'd be truly lost without me. Well, he chooses dopes like this. And so back to this morning's text. The men had nothing to say when Jesus asked them about their argument. They had nothing to say because they knew. They knew the absurdity of what they had been arguing about. Their greatness in light of Jesus' humility, in light of his laying down his life for their behalf. And so they knew the absurdity, and so they kept their mouth shut. They had nothing to say when he asked them, but now John speaks up. Now John has something to say. Luke tells us that he was answering Jesus. So this is John's response to what Jesus has just said about his laying down his life and about them and their following after him and being truly great in the kingdom of God. His picture of humble servant leadership. This was John's answer. I'm assuming he was proud of what he was about to say. I can just picture him there. With his head held high, waiting on an attaboy from Jesus. Would you just pat me on the back and tell me I'm pretty? Tell me how smart I am. Tell me how useful I am. Tell me how proud you are of what I've said. And this is what he says. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So, because Mark does not give us the narrative here, because we don't have a picture, a record of the actual encounter, and because very little apart from this is told us about the man in question this morning, we're left to make some inferences about what's happened here. Although, I believe that we can be pretty confident in some really key facts about what happened on that day based on what John says and based on the way that Jesus responds. So firstly, we can deduct that the man was in fact successful in casting out demons. You'll notice that John does not say, Lord, we saw a man trying to cast out demons in your name. It appears as though this man was successful in casting out demons in the name of Jesus. These were not the sons of Sceva. You see, when, when we get to Acts 19, after Jesus has resurrected and ascended to heaven, we see these men, these traveling exorcists. 
They're sons of the Jewish high priest, Sceva. And so they were attempting to mimic the work or, or to perhaps copy the work that God was doing through, through the apostle Paul there in Ephesus. And so what they would do is they would come and they would speak over one that had an unclean spirit. And they would say, Acts 19, 13, I adjure you by the Jesus who Paul claims. So apparently these men believed that Jesus' name was like some kind of magic spell. You say these words, you say this chant, you stand this way, you move your hands like this, you drink this potion, and voila, the demons must obey. See, sadly, there's many people that believe that today. They believe in Jesus' name as if it was some kind of magic spell. Or perhaps as if you were name-dropping to a bouncer at a club. But all you have to do at the end of any prayer is tack on the words, in Jesus' name, and God is obliged to give you whatever it is that you ask for. We see this even at the point of salvation. As we call people to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we teach them that they will just say this magic prayer. Just recite this spell. Say these words. Make certain you say in Jesus' name at the end, and you're guaranteed salvation and blessing. So many of us, we cling to this. But what we see here, let's see what happens for these guys. Acts 19, 15 through 16. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit, he left on them. He mastered all of them. He overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I love this story way more than I should. <laughs> but what we see here is a physical picture of the reality that casting out demons in Jesus' name is more than just saying some specific prayer. What we see here is that pretending, that believing that you are acting in Jesus' name while doing nothing more than tacking his name onto your ministry, while knowing nothing of him, while knowing nothing of his kingdom, while caring nothing of his glory, while trying to build a name and a reputation and a power for yourself. In the middle of this, it's going to leave you wounded and lost and naked. Maybe not naked, but certainly wounded and lost to go and try to minister in the name of Jesus Christ while knowing nothing of him, while caring nothing for his glory. So that when John tells us that this man was casting out demons in Jesus' name, I believe that we are safe to assume that was truly his desire, that he was not playing games. He was not seeking to be great according to the greatness of this world. He was not seeking to make a name for himself. This was not Simon the magician trying to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit. It appears that this man truly was acting in Jesus' name, representing the Lord, seeking his glory with his desire, his utmost desire to receive God in Christ. It's what we talked about last week. To go out in Jesus' name as his representative, as his service, under his authority, for the sake of his glory. No servant works for the sake of his own glory. We have to assume that that's what this man was doing. Truly casting out demons in Jesus' name by the power of Jesus' name for the sake of his glory. Much like we see from Peter in Acts 3 or Paul in Acts uh, 16. We see them going out at this special time in redemptive history. This is a critical time in redemptive history in which the demons, knowing that the kingdom of God had come, Knowing that the one that was there had come to destroy the works of the devil, they couldn't help themselves but cry out. They wanted to remain quiet. They wanted to remain silent. They wanted to just slip in with the rest of the crowd. They could not help themselves until they cried out. And so as an evidence that the kingdom of God had come, God used these people and the power of Jesus Christ, sent out in his authority to command these demons, and they must obey. And so we see in Luke eleven twenty, 20, Jesus speaks to this. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, as I said, we're left to make some educated deductions based on what John says and what Jesus says, but we must take great care that we do not speak in absolutes whenever the text does not allow it. 
You got to make certain that we only take the text as long as, as far as Jesus leads us. And then at that point, we are safe to make some deductions, to make some assumptions, but we must identify them as such, especially when it comes to the eternal estate of this man. You see, this man, he calls Jesus Lord, but he could. He could, I suppose, perhaps be like those men that we see in Matthew 7, 21, those men who call Jesus Lord. Even those who go out and prophesy and work and cast out demons and do mighty, mighty works in Jesus' name, and yet they will be cast from the presence of God because he never knew them. Self-deceived religious men so caught up in doing church that they forgot to ever get around to repenting. That they never got around to submitting to Jesus as Lord. They never knew him, and he never knew them. They were as lost as lost can be. I suppose that could be this man. But that would seem, that would seem to me to be contrary to what Jesus is teaching in this morning's text. And again, based on what John says of the man, and the way that Jesus responds, the way that Jesus speaks at the end of this text, I believe that we are fairly safe in saying that we are dealing with a true believer here. That someone, perhaps even Jesus himself, had come to this man and had taught him that Jesus is the Christ, even the Son of God, and that the kingdom of God is near, and that by the power of God, this man had been, had been brought to the place of believing, of trusting in this glorious news that was preached to him. I feel quite confident in that. I'm not, I cannot guarantee you of this, but I'm not alone in feeling quite confident this man was a true believer, a genuine disciple, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. But of this man, this is what John says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So again, John acknowledges the man's success. He acknowledges that the man was successfully ministering in the name of Jesus, and he and the others tried to stop him. Now, if we gave the, the disciples, John and the other apostles, if we were to give them the benefit of the doubt, we may assume that what happened was they looked to this man and they found something lacking in him. They found something incongruent in this man with the name of Jesus Christ, and so they thought in order to protect the ministry, the name, Jesus Jesus Christ, our master, in order to protect him, we're going to step in and stop this man on Jesus' behalf. But if the last few weeks, the last few months have taught us anything about the disciples, we see how unlikely this is. They were too self-consumed. They were too self-focused. You see, I have to believe that these disciples, they were still thinking back to their own failures at the, Mount of base, at the base of Mount Hermon. That place where the father had brought his son with the unclean spirit. The father had come hoping to meet Jesus. But friends, there's a lesson in that in and of itself. I mean, people never come into this place seeking to meet Jesus and instead find you standing in the way. But they came seeking Jesus, that Jesus was up on the mountain receiving, revealing his glory. This was all according to God's purpose. But there were the disciples, and so they attempted in their own power to cast out this demon, to command this demon, and found themselves completely unsuccessful. So I have to wonder, were these men still reeling from the sting of that failure? Or perhaps were they worried? Were they worried that Jesus was going to see this man doing what they had not done? I can only assume that what this man was doing was turning in faithful prayer and trusting in the power of God. That's the only way this thing happens. So perhaps were they afraid that Jesus was going to look over there and go, there is one doing what you would not He's going to now take your place, and I'm now going to remove you from your spot. Perhaps were they still thinking of greatness according to earthly terms, believing that their usefulness for the kingdom of God, their value, their worth, their place within the kingdom of God was tied to the success, the earthly success of their ministry. We don't know. Whatever their thoughts were at the time of the encounter, John's statement makes it very clear here that his ultimate concern was not the name of Christ. His ultimate concern was the fact that the man was not following after them. 
This is what he says. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. Luke tells us that he says because he was not following along with us. In either case, the focus is us. In either case, their concern was not that the man was not following Jesus. He didn't say that. He didn't say, Jesus, this man was not a follower of you. Their answer is, he was not following us, or he was not following you the way that we follow you. He was not following you along with us, side by side with us, as part of our group. This was their primary concern. They did not voice their concern with the terms that this man is dishonoring you, Jesus. This man is blaspheming your name. Although that could have been some underlying, underlying concern. They might have convinced themselves that the only way to honor Christ, that the only way not to disregard and disrespect his name is to follow the way that we follow. That's generally the way that you justify these things, isn't it? They didn't believe that they were trying to make a name for themselves. They probably deep down believe, uh, believed to themselves, we're trying to protect your name, Jesus, and the only way to protect your name is to make sure that everybody walks like we walk. To make sure that everybody walks after you, follows after you, in the exact same way that we do it. Again, their primary concern was not fidelity to Christ. They were upset that this man did not have membership in their exclusive club. We are the only authorized followers of Jesus Christ. If you do not have our stamp of authenticity, then you can't truly follow him. You cannot be approved. You cannot be used. But perhaps this man was one of the 70. Perhaps he was one of the others that Jesus had sent out in the authority of his name, those that had successfully gone out and cast out demons in his name. Again, I believe, based on what we read here, this man was a true follower, a true disciple of Jesus Christ, successfully working and ministering. What about the people that he was healing? He was casting out demons from men. How'd you like to be that dude? As these other apostles show up and go, stop that. Stop healing this dude. Why would you do that? You're not in our group. But they didn't care. They had convinced themselves that the only right way to follow Jesus Christ was to be with them. And therefore, they believed that it was their job to stop these other men. Verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. So Jesus says, don't do that. First of all, just as with John, you'll notice that Jesus confirms here that this was, in fact, a mighty work in his name. That this isn't some false miracle or some sleight of hand. This man truly was casting out demons in Jesus' name. But he goes on to say, this man is mine. If he is sincerely working and speaking and living in my name. This isn't lip service. Genuinely seeking my glory rather than his own and experiencing my power, working through him and casting out demons, he will not be able to then turn and speak evil of me. He will not be able to turn and call me a sinner, a criminal, a blasphemer. It is not possible. It's not possible to turn away after being used to me in this way. That's why he says no one. He leaves no room for exception. He's saying here, you have nothing to fear. Why would you go out and assume that you're protecting my name when I've set this man for this? I've used him for this. He goes on to explain in very different terms, and this is the key statement in this entire text. There's no need for assumptions here or conjecture. Here's what he says, verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. That's pretty black and white. Doesn't leave a lot of room for in between. He says, if you're not for Christ, excuse me, if you're not against Christ, you're for him. He says the same truth in the reverse terms. The flip side of the coin in Matthew 12, 30. We read this. Whoever is not with me is against me. Again, this is black and white. No room for gray here. There is no in-between. Whoever, you're either for Jesus, you're either with Jesus and for his kingdom, or you're against him. This is a truth that is so very lost on so much of the world. Even so much of the world that calls himself Christian. They believe perhaps that there's some third option. They believe that maybe there's some place for neutrality. 
within the kingdom of God. Perhaps they believe that they can just wait until later in order to pick a side. Perhaps they believe that they can live with a foot in each camp. But this is war. This is spiritual warfare. Satan and his demons opposing God and doing all that they can to destroy man. Jesus Christ, having come, doing everything that needs to be done to secure the victory, to extend peace to sinful men through his payment on the cross. All that needs to be done. And so every single man, every single one of us, every single one that has ever lived, he is either a son of the devil, a child of wrath, committed enemy of God, or he's an adopted brother of Jesus Christ, a son of the Most High God, a spirit-filled child of God, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. There is no in-between. There are no other options. You get this. You're either a child of God with Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ, following Jesus Christ, or you are against him. You notice it says nothing about being a good person in there. You're one or the other. You're either with Christ or you're against him. And please understand, to be against Christ does not necessarily mean that you're consistently, combatively, actively working to destroy his name. It does not mean that you wake up every morning like some kind of supervillain trying to destroy his church. If Jesus means what he says, if Jesus truly means what he says, going back to Matthew 7, 21, if he truly means what he says, there are many, many, many who believe that they are for Christ, who believe that they are with Christ, who will someday find themselves judged and condemned in their sin because he never knew them. They will find that they were nothing more than an actor, than a plant, than a mole, completely deceived into believing that they belonged to Christ, completely believing that they were with Christ, all the while they were being used of Satan against them. I'm talking about good people, sweet people, good neighbors, people that show up in this place for Sunday morning worship, people that post Bible memes on their Instagram, people that claim the name of Christ, all the while never knowing him, completely and utterly shocked and turned away at the gates of heaven to find that they never knew Christ and he never knew them because they had never truly been exposed, stood exposed before the word of God. They never truly heard with God-given ears that hear the truth of his gospel. So hardened in their heart that they rejected Jesus Christ as Lord, even while their lips sang songs of praise to him. Even while they had their heads held high with the utmost confidence that they were with Christ. I'm marching with Christ straight to the gates of heaven. I'm being used of Christ in ways this world has never seen while completely and totally against him. Never knowing it. You're either with him. Completely with him. With him according to his terms as he is defined in his word. Or you're against him. There's no in between. There's no neutrality. I also need to make clear what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not turned into some kind of theological liberal. Jesus is not here subscribing to some kind of universalism where most everybody finds their own way to the kingdom of heaven. All that Jesus has taught leading up to this point and all that he's going to teach proceeding from this, it all still stands. Jesus is not somehow offering to us some now widened road that leads to eternal life. He's not offering some new way to God. The only way of salvation is, has always been, and will always be true repentant faith repenting of your sin turning and trusting in jesus christ and enduring in that repentant faith all the way to your very last day that is the only way of salvation do this and you will be saved do not and nothing else matters you will perish you got to understand this at this point the way is still narrow 
The path is still hard that leads to life, and few will still find it. But what Jesus is saying here is that if God brings a man to this point, if by the power of his spirit he brings a man to this point, brings a man to truly repent, to find this narrow way, to trust in Jesus Christ, to walk in obedience to him, to strive for his name's sake, then you have no business opposing him. You do not get to take the narrow way of God and make it even more narrow. You do not need to look at those that God has brought to true, saving, eternal life, salvation in Jesus Christ and say, but you don't do this my way, and so I, I kick you from the path. You cannot minister in Jesus' name. You cannot be used for the sake of his glory. He says, if he is for me, then you have no business opposing him. Whether he's in your little group or not, that is not the question. You'll notice that Judas was in the group, wasn't he? Being a part of your little group, your little certified authorized group, that is not the determining factor for your place in or usefulness in the kingdom of God. He is for me, and if he is for me, then he is for you. He is your brother, and he is to be treated accordingly. Are y'all tracking with me? Sometimes it's hard to tell as a, as a preacher, okay? I'm just going to be honest with you. It's hard to tell whether you're asleep or whether you're convicted. <laughs> they look the same sometimes. This is convicting. As a pastor, this is convicting. Because don't you know we're the only good church left in the world? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know why anybody would go anywhere else. And then God brings you here. So Jesus is telling John and the others, would you presume to take this already narrow way? Would you presume to take this already hard path and further restrict it? Would you take that way, the only way that I've ordained is a path to heaven, and would you restrict it further? Isn't that what we do? Now, this, in some respects, this is where the early church struggled. You see, what we'll find there as we get to the book of Acts is we'll find these disputes amongst some of the believers, some of the leaders within the church, because they wanted to add circumcision onto the gospel. They wanted to tell people that in order to come and truly be used of Christ, you must follow these other steps. You must follow these other traditions. You must follow these other commands. You must do these things which have, have not found their place in the gospel. We're going to add these further burdens upon you before you can come and be called Christian before you can come and call yourself a part of the church, before you can be used of God. They added obstacles to the already hard path. This is the basis of the conflict between Peter and Paul. And frankly, this is where legalism leads us, to infighting, to believers turning and squabbling amongst themselves about secondary issues. To be with Christ, you repent and believe in him. Continue in that repentance and in that belief, nothing more. But we see identical conflicts today. Believers pridefully opposing each other because they belong to some other group. Because they're not a part of their authorized gathering. Surely when I was speaking to you about the hostility of the apostles towards this man, surely some of you were thinking about similar groups. Maybe not groups of 12, maybe not groups of 70, but entire churches. Entire groups segregated on the basis of secondary or tertiary, tertiary matters. And I do, not, I do not want to speak flippantly. I do not want to disregard or unnecessarily denigrate these matters by which denominations have formed. I, I don't want to belittle the reality that it may be good and it may be right 
for churches, groups of people, groups of churches even, to gather together on the basis of some secondary issue like infant baptism or the way that we understand communion. This is one of those ways where we make sure that worship is orderly. This is one of those ways where we make sure that people can gather together and worship in accordance with their convictions. This is a way that we can make sure that there's not unnecessary strife within the body. I'm not saying that denominationalism is just an absolute farce, that there's no place for us to gather together as people that hold these certain convictions about these secondary matters. That may well be good and right. It may well glorify and honor God, but there's absolutely no place for pride in these things. There's no place for pride or for opposing the works of others that truly believe in Jesus Christ. Those that are true followers of Jesus Christ, there's no room for pride, for haughtiness, or for even worse, for opposing them because they do not follow Jesus in the exact same way that we follow Jesus or because they do not belong to our exact same group. Now, there are going to be plenty of times for opposition. There are going to be plenty of times when it is necessary and right and good for there to be correction and even confrontation. There are plenty of churches out there that preach these feel-good, watered-down, ear-tickling, man-centered, motivational speeches and call them the gospel. There are plenty of churches out there that celebrate. They celebrate the, the con conversion of hundreds and even thousands of men while having never once spoken of re repentance. There are plenty of people out there that convince men that you can follow after Jesus Christ with a life absolutely void of any suffering, of any sacrifice, of any laying down your life, that all God wants for you is to be happy and wealthy and healthy and wise. And I'm not speaking of them. Those are not the churches that I'm speaking of. Those people, we must pray for them. Still with no pride. You don't know what you know because you woke up smarter. You don't understand what you understand of the Holy Scriptures because you're better. It was all the grace of God. It was all the grace of God that he brought you not only to believe the bare bones basic gospel, that he brought you to grow in your understanding of the deeper doctrines. It's all the work of the living God. No room for pride. So we pray for him. We pray for them. We look for opportunities for real, deep gospel conversations. No, we don't join ourselves with them in any real meaningful way. No, I'm not going to allow their preachers to come in here and poison your hearts with words that are not true, with false gospels. But we treat them as unbelievers. We evangelize them when possible, when they give us evidence that that's the case. I'm also not saying that there's no room for lovingly correcting our brothers and sisters, even within this body, whenever they err. Look, if someone speaks something that is not true, if somebody has erred in their understanding, we come alongside them lovingly, patiently, with great humility, and we help show them by the Holy Scriptures where they veered off course. Again, I'm not saying that there's no room for correction. I'm not even saying that there's no room for confrontation. I'm also not saying that there's no room for discernment. In 1 John 4, 2-3, we read this. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Even within this body, we don't just allow anybody that walks up to the door and says, hey, this seems like a cool group. I'd like to be a member. We don't just allow any of them to walk in and join together with us. We pray. We listen to their confession. We examine. We ask them questions. And then, as best we can tell, we try to determine if they are, in fact, a follower of Jesus Christ. And we do this, not just for the sake of this church, but for the sake of the one professing to be a believer. You see this. There is no compassion whatsoever in giving men false assurance while they live lives that are completely contrary to the gospel. There is no love in allowing men to join together with this body. Number one, it's going to destroy this church. I asked a question this week to my staff. I'm not going to tell you their answers. 
I asked a question this week to my staff, and I asked them, what portion of the average local church do you believe are actually believers? I'll tell you why we asked this question. Because we have seen so many pastors fall. We're talking about just how many pastors fall into just egregious sin. Just deep, dark, ugly sin. And how many of them you see just turn away from the faith entirely, denouncing the name of Jesus Christ. And so we got to talking about that, and I asked the question, how, what percentage, what percentage of the average local church do you believe are true followers of Jesus Christ? I would love to take a poll right now. There's great damage done to the local church when it is filled with non-believers. And there will always be non-believers. There will always be wheat among the tares. There will always be goat among the sheep. There are always going to be people that are deceived. They're not showing up as a Trojan horse trying to bring Satan into this place. Deceived people that come here. We pray that they would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and that here they would be reconciled to him. That here for the first time, with no shame whatsoever, they would look back and go, I don't know what that was. That wasn't salvation. This is the day of my salvation. But it's also so damaging to them for us to allow them, to allow them to be rocked to sleep by the enemy, continually whispering, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay, because they have to get out a hell free card in their back pocket that's called church membership. We don't love them by doing this. So we have to have discernment to lovingly push them to think, you wonder why I preach the gospel almost every week? Because some of you people aren't converted. Don't look around, look inward. I do. If I had a nickel for every time, I wondered, am I really saved? And went to the scriptures and fell to my knees in prayer. But for the few, for those that have truly embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, for those who submit to the full counsel of God's word, for those who are working out their f salvation with fear and trembling, Jesus is saying, do not oppose them. They're like you. They came to me the same way you came to me. There is no alternative path. They didn't sneak in the back door. They didn't come in the side door. I called them to me by the working of my Holy Spirit, just like you. I called them to me, and they are mine. Would you dare denigrate those that belong to the body of Christ? Would you dare tear down those that are part of my bride? Would you dare oppose those that are part of the temple of the living Holy Spirit? Is that what you would do? Those that I've called, those that I've chosen, those that I've predestined, those that I've called out of their sin and into eternal life, would you dare oppose those people? There's so few of you to start with. Think about it this time, particularly. By the time that Jesus ascends to heaven, it's a little over a hundred there gathered in that place. He's saying, what, you got room to kick some out? There's so few that have found this way by the working of my Holy Spirit. They're for me, therefore they are for you. But the apostles were so consumed by self. They're so consumed by their place. They're so consumed by their elite group. They're so consumed by who they were, who they were becoming, how God was using them, that they saw no room for God to use anybody else other than their tiny little group, and then even within their tiny little group, they fought for positions of power that who could be the greatest? Who could lord over the others, their power and their authority? They were truly trying to stop the work of God carried out in a brother because they themselves did not grasp the primary things. I think that is absolutely it. I think that what got in their, got in their way, what led them to oppose a true brother 
when truly being used of Jesus Christ for the sake of his glory was they didn't understand the basics of the gospel. They continued to wrestle. They continued to misunderstand. They continued to err. And I'm afraid that that's the case today. That so many of us, that so many of us that find ourselves opposing the true brothers, that so many of us that find ourselves carrying this haughty, elitist attitude, that so many of us that believe that if you don't belong to the Southern Baptist Convention, that there's no way that you can get to heaven. That so many of us that believe that you have to go to this church and believe every single thing, that your theology, every, dot, every I must be dotted, every T must be crossed. You must understand the return of Jesus Christ exactly the way that I do. You must read the scriptures exactly the way that I do. You must sing the exact same songs that I do. You must dress the way that I do. You must do all things the way that we do them, or you can have no place in the kingdom of God. I believe that this is driven by people that know nothing of the true gospel. That they've completely missed it, either because it was not clearly represented to them, or perhaps because they refused to go to the scripture and do the hard work of standing exposed and naked and transparent. Because that hurts. I've often talked about this thing like monkey blood. Those of you that grew up, if you're over the age of 40, you know what monkey blood is. I don't know the real name for it. It's that red stuff that's basically liquid fire. You get cuts and scrapes and turf burns in my case. And they would come and they would spray that stuff on you, and it was the worst. But here was what was even worse. They'd spray it here and there'd be overspray, and you'd realize, I got cuts up here too. You knew you had this big gaping wound and you needed some treatment. But then as they sprayed it here, you found all these other things. You went, where did that come from? That's what the Bible does. You come to the Bible thinking, okay, I got this one problem. I got this one problem. If I can just get rid of my drinking, if I can just get rid of the things I look at at the internet, if I can just get rid of my filthy mouth, if I can just get rid of the way I manage my money, if I can just get rid of this, I'm going to be okay. And you stand before God and you go, whoa, where did that come from? I just wanted you to deal with this. And so men completely miss the true gospel of Jesus Christ. They completely miss the reality that they should be under the wrath of the Almighty God. They completely miss all that Jesus Christ has done on their behalf. And so they find themselves arguing over the lesser issues. They find themselves arguing over that which should not matter. Look, we need to study the scriptures as best we can come to an understanding. We need to follow the convictions that God has given us to, to, to do our best to understand baptism and the Lord's Supper and orders of service and all the rest. But we need to hold them very loosely with incredible humility lest we find ourselves disregarding the word of God in exchange for the traditions of men. Lest we find ourselves as believers, believers even within the same church, separating on the basis not just of worship, but political parties and affiliations. We talk about a tertiary matter. How about a fortiary? That's not a word. Secondary, tertiary Pentiary? Segregating based on what? Haughty based on what? Determining who can and cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ. Who can and cannot be used according to God. When you've got brothers and sisters that have come to the true life-giving gospel and given their life completely, evidence written all over it, but you don't belong to my group, and so I kick you out. So lost sight of the true things which truly matter. The only basis for our Christian the only basis for our Christian unity. And at the same time, these same people completely unwilling to confront blatant sin and heresy. Buddy, we will go to war over music styles. We will go to war over flower arrangements. While your brother lives in absolute 
sin. And you don't dare go to them. Or your brother spouts heresy. Completely disregarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will not have that conversation. But buddy, you tell me that hymns are better than contemporary music and you are out. But this is where it leads us. And I believe that this is driven by a failure to truly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when we do, our personal preferences seem to disappear. Whenever you come to understand reality, the true reality of all that has been done, that was the, that was the basis for this morning's text. You notice we reordered our worship. I don't know what we're doing, guys. Like, I, like we're trying, man. We're just trying. There's just some pieces that don't yet jive yet, and until they do, we're going to keep working. We're going to keep striving, humbly, and with very open hands. We're going to keep struggling to work. We thought it right, though, to read a text which, com which, which pours into this text right before the reading of this text. It seems right. I don't know. We're going to keep working. But that was the reality behind what David read. There's one God, one Lord, one baptism, one salvation in Jesus Christ. And that when we grasp that, the reality of that, that we're all sinful men, fallen men deserving of the wrath of God, and we realize the price that Jesus Christ paid in order to tear down all barriers that men from all over the world could come together, from all over backgrounds that could come together, with all manner of sin in their life could come together, that God could bring them all together to be the bride of Christ, the invisible universal church, all that he's doing, yes, within these walls, but all throughout this globe. All that Jesus Christ did to tear down these barriers only for men to come right beside and put them right back up. We cling to the very things that Jesus died to tear down. We fight and we bicker over the things that Jesus gave his life to eliminate. We're all too happy, though, to build these little bubbles around ourselves because we don't grasp the depths of what he has done. We don't grasp the truth of his gospel. And so we're consumed by the things that he set us free for, free from. And we miss, we threaten ourselves to completely miss the unity that's found in the gospel. In exchange, we may truly miss the kingdom of God, but hey, at least we don't drink and dance. At least we're not Methodists. Well, this ought not be. To truly know and love and cherish Jesus Christ. To recognize the price that he has paid. To recognize the exchange that he has made. To recognize all the goodness and grace and mercy that he has poured into your life despite all that you deserve. Despite your opposition and your rebellion against him and against his kingdom. To recognize the family that he has bound together. There's simply no room for opposition. There's no room for haughtiness. There's no room for pride. There's no room for division based on anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did he say at the beginning? You are for me or you are against me. That's the only division which matters. That's the only question at hand. And even in the way that we treat the non-believers, still no pride, still no haughtiness, a willingness to lay down our lives that they may see the gospel is glorious. They may see and know and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. To see the gospel is to embrace that. There's no room for anything else. And so that's my fear. As I see the divisions growing, as I see the fights happening, I'm not talking about our church. I don't see much of that anymore. Anymore. But as I see the, the world tearing each other apart on the basis of things which will have no bearing in the, eternity, in, in the eternal life, I recognize it's because they don't understand the true gospel. They haven't seen the beauty of the gospel. To see the most glorious diamond, the most glorious jewel, the most glorious treasure, you don't care about everything else. You're looking at a treasure that you have just stumbled upon 
through no work, through no might, through no effort, through no goodness in yourself. Here's a treasure that God has offered to you completely. And people are going, yeah, but you know what? There's two squirrels fighting on a tree. Why don't you go break them up? I don't have time for that. I found something that I, I can't let loose of. So Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So he's saying he's going beyond not merely opposing believers, but he's talking about coming alongside them, serving. This, this picture of serving those that are your brothers, those that are for you. This whoever that he uses here, this points back to the man that John talked about. Pointing back to the man that was serving in Jesus' name. This is the whoever. This also points us back to the text last week where he's talking about whoever would serve even the littlest of child, even the most insignificant, the most helpless member of my family. Whoever, whoever helps even the least of the brothers, whoever does this for my name's sake, whoever supports and serves and lifts up your fellow brothers as they go out and seek to serve. That's what this ought to look like. As we look around us and we see our brothers serving, striving, working, we should come alongside them. How can I bless you? How can I serve you? How can I support you and what it is that you're doing? When you do this, that you'll receive a, a reward that cannot be lost. We need to see the flip side of this. To oppose them, you're opposing one that will be blessed of God. You're opposing one that God will stand before, that will stand before God on that final day and will receive a reward, the reward that cannot be taken away, that cannot be lost. To oppose him is to oppose God himself. So instead we come alongside them, knowing that we ourselves will receive a blessing. You don't have to have the biggest and greatest ministry, don't you see? You don't have to build giant churches. You don't have to have some big online presence. How about a cup of water to a brother that's serving in Jesus' name? The most basic act of kindness because you see a brother that has known your Savior, Jesus Christ, and is following after him. So what do we do with this? We need to wrap this up. Number one, we, treat, we, we teach the straightforward gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I've said. I pray that that would be the drumbeat of our church. That we would know the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where discernment comes from. That when you so know the real thing, that everything else just sounds like a noisy gong. Everything else hurts your ears. You can't stand the fluff. You can't stand the lies. You can't stand the empty promises. You can't stand the false gospel. That you so know the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. That we in every way, not just in this place, in your Bible studies, in your home, with your children, in your prayer time, in your prayer closet, in your quiet time, that you're consistently coming to the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ, the only gospel that will lead to eternal life, the only gospel that you find in this word, that you will be so acquainted with it that you will have discernment. You will know when there is someone that is deceived standing before you making promises that God has never intended to make. And number two, that we hold on to everything else very, very humbly. Any of your own patterns any of your own preferences, anything which might lead to pride, you let loose of those things. Your beliefs about things that the Bible has not said clearly, your beliefs about those matters which God has left room for disagreement amongst honest, true believers, you hold on to those things with great humility, never once looking down upon or attempting to restrict the ministry of someone else because they don't hold to your exact belief or belong to your club. And in addition to that, you look for flames. You look for sparks. You look for the activity of the Holy Spirit in your brothers and sisters. Everywhere you go, you're looking for it. You know that that is my, what do you call it? What do you call the thing? 
Not a motto. Not a mantra. It doesn't matter. That, that is my... That is, anyways, my idea of what I'm supposed to be. There's a word. I'm going to come back. The second service is going to get it. Y'all didn't. But there is, there, is a, there is a word for... I believe that my job as a pastor, right? My primary job as a pastor is to pray for you guys. To study the scriptures. To faithfully preach the scriptures. To serve you. But then with regards to ministry... My job is not to build a bunch of ministries in this church. My job is not to build a bunch of programs in this church. My job is not to make sure that every single ministry within this church is done the exact way that I would do it. My job is to look for sparks, look for tiny evidence of flames, and then throw fuel on it. Should be all our jobs. Should be all of our, like we're going out in this world and we're just looking for sparks for work of the Holy Spirit and going, how can I support that? That's the real thing. I know that you don't sound the way I would sound. I know that you don't hold to every single last piece of my theology. I know that you're not following after my group. I know that you don't even belong to my church. But I see you doing the work of God. How can I support you? How can I give you a cup of water? How can I come alongside you? How can I point others to this truth? Because there's so little of that. Don't you understand this? There are so few that have found the kingdom of God. There are so few that have found the narrow path. There are so few that will truly find eternal life. When you find them, you ought to be excited. You ought to be on fire. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you yet again for your straightforward teaching, Father. We thank you that you have given us the ability to stand in a place like this and wrestle with this truth, knowing that, that there are so many places where we surely miss the mark. And yet you allow us, Father, to wrestle and scratch and claw and grasp after a deeper knowledge and understanding of you. We thank you, Father, that you have not cast us out. We thank you that you have not struck us dead. Father, we pray that as we take this truth and carry it out into the world, Father, that we would not only sit under conviction and just feel badly about the times that we have fallen guilty of this sin, but that, Father, we would be changed, that we would truly seek, with a discerning mind, that we would truly seek to love and lift up and serve our fellow believers. I pray that within this faith family, Father, that we would love and build up and serve and care for each other, no room for haughtiness, no room for personal preferences. And that, Father, as a result of all of this, that you would be truly glorified, that the world would not look and see your church just like the rest of the world, just like the rest of the power structures, that they would see a people so desperately in love with their Savior that they're willing to lay down even their lives if that's what it takes. So, Father, as we seek to glorify you now in your presence, we pray that you would be pleased with not only the words that we speak, but the meditations of our hearts. Through your Son's precious name we pray. Amen.